the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Today we're going to talk with Corbin Professor Timothy Anderson, his latest book, Into His Presence, A Theology of Intimacy with God. We'll also talk in the next hour with Brett Schaefer. He is the J. Kingham Fellow in International Regulatory Affairs at the Heritage Foundation's Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom on why the U.S. has to take strategic steps to ensure that China's influence is reasonably contained and its leadership restricted and channeled to parts of the organization that do not directly undermine U.S. and core U.N. Interests. We'll also talk with Phil Vischer. The name may sound familiar to you. He's the creator, the original creator of the Veggie Tales. Well, he's back and connected with Veggie Tales with 18 new episodes, as well as a children's Bible, the Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids. We'll catch up with Phil Vischer and find out what he's doing and what's different about what's he what he's producing now, as opposed to what was produced most recently once the uh, series was out of his hands. Phil Vischer will join us also in the five o'clock hour, and we'll go. To continue giving away tickets to Trey McLaughlin and his uh, his crew, we'll do that in the five o'clock hour today as well. First, to look at some of the headlines and the flurry of activity that's been going on in Washington and elsewhere today, New York as well. Just a day after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi strongly suggested she was now warning uh, to uh, the idea, warming to the idea of impeachment, President Trump. Uh, a slew of key swing district Democrats late Monday threw their support in mass behind opening a formal impeachment inquiry, which I thought was already done. But this is an, another uh, in, in, uh, impeachment inquiry. The rapid fire declarations by the influential Democrats after seemingly months of teetering on the brink. Uh, came as uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal reported in the evening that Trump personally ordered acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney to freeze nearly $400 million in aid to Ukraine in the days before he pressed the new Ukrainian president to investigate the Democrats' leading presidential candidate's son. Fox News has now confirmed that report, which was attributed to two senior administration officials. An official told the Wall Street Journal that the Trump administration internally maintained at the time that Ukraine's corruption promise were a consideration in the aid decision. Trump's decision to freeze Ukraine uh, funding reportedly came more than a week before his call with Zelensky. Leaders on the House Democrats uh, of the House Democrats, meanwhile, scheduled a meeting for Tuesday afternoon on how to handle the explosive whistleblower complaint. More on that later in the program. And the escalating controversy over the president's phone conversation with Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky has ignited a battle on Capitol Hill over Democrats' demands for a copy of the whistleblower complaint against the president as some liberal lawmakers threaten subpoena while 
Republicans call for restraint while they gather the facts. Trump has denied any wrongdoing, but Democrats have been moving full steam ahead, calling for the whistleblower complaint to be released to lawmakers. Republicans have since also called for the same. Meanwhile, a source says that the whistleblower who sparked the mounting controversy did not have firsthand knowledge of the conversation between the president and the Ukrainian president. Now, all of this, of course, is hearsay until we actually find out who that individual was, whether or not they were present at the time or if this was secondhand information. So uh, much of what we think we know may not be accurate. In an exclusive interview with uh, Sean Hannity, Vice President Pence blasted the media over its coverage of the Ukrainian uh, controversy. Uh, the president, the vice president says that he's been um, the media has been relentless in their condemnation of the president while ignoring the allegations of quid pro quo against Joe Biden. As the Ukrainian whistleblower controversy brews, the president is preparing to call for a multinational response to Iran's escalating aggression as he uh, traveled to the U.N. assembly in New York today. While the president wants allies to join the U.S. in further isolating Iran, he also seems to be withholding or rather holding to his go it alone strategy of using economic sanctions to pressure Tehran to give up its nuclear program and stop attacks that are rattling the Middle East. On Monday, the president praised British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's call for a new deal to replace the 2015 Iran nuclear pact from which Trump walked away. President Trump was expected to use his speech to blame Iran for recent strikes against oil facilities in Saudi Arabia. Iran has denied orchestrating the attack, uh, which Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has deemed an act of war. Britain, France and Germany joined the United States on Monday in blaming Iran for the attacks. Iranian Foreign Minister uh, Zarif, for his part, pointed to claims of responsibility by Yemen rebels. And the Democratic National Committee is raising the bar for presidential candidates to qualify for November's fifth-round primary debate. The DNC announced on Monday that to qualify for the November showdown, candidates must reach at least 3% in four approved national or early voting state polls. That's up from 2% needed to reach the stage at September and October debates and up uh, from the 1% needed in three approved surveys for the June and July debates. But the upping of polling and donor thresholds, more modest than the doubling of the criterion from July's second round to this month's third round, may not significantly winnow the field of White House contenders still standing after October's debate. And federal prosecutors in California are conducting a criminal investigation into e-cigarette maker Juul Labs, Inc., the Wall Street Journal reports. The probe by the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Northern District of California is in its early stages, sources say, blaming um, the rise in vaping among teenagers on the company. The Federal Trade Commission, the Food and Drug Administration, and several state states' attorney generals uh, are investigating its marketing practices. The House Oversight and Reform Committee is scheduled to have a hearing on vaping and the recent rise in related lung diseases. The Supreme Court of the United Kingdom has declared Prime Minister Boris Johnson's suspension of Parliament just weeks before the deadline for Britain to leave the European Union unlawful. Uh, Johnson was accused of suspending or um, pro proguing, I guess is the word, the legislature to limit the time lawmakers have to debate and intervene in his Brexit policy. It was a devastating blow to Johnson as the high court cleared the way for Parliament to reconvene immediately to resume debating his Brexit plans. The implications are murky, though state sovereignty appears to remain elusive for even longer. The Trump administration will no longer allow migrant families apprehended at the border to enter the U.S. under the immigration policy commonly known as catch and release. The policy change was announced Monday by Acting Secretary of Homeland Security Kevin McLeanan. 
in remarks at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington. The secretary said the end of catch and release is a reaction in part to the record of a record number of 144,000 migrants apprehended or encountered at the southern border in May. He said that 72 percent were unaccompanied children or families. And the Marine Corps has charged 13 members with smuggling illegal immigrants into the U.S. in addition to a range of other offenses, including failure to obey an order, drunkenness, endangerment, larceny and perjury, according to a statement released on Friday. Lance Corporals Byron Law and David Salazar uh, were specifically charged with transporting illegal immigrants into the country for financial gain. The two were based at Camp Pendleton, uh, located between San Diego and Los Angeles, California. The other Marines included in the indictments, some of um, whom were charged with disturbing uh, the peace, distributing cocaine and LSD, were not named. And the FBI has arrested a U.S. soldier who allegedly discussed plans to bomb a major U.S. Uh, News network planned to travel to Ukraine to fight with violent far-right group Azov Battalion and allegedly distributed information online on how to build bombs. He also allegedly suggested targeting Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Reminder, coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Professor Timothy Anderson. He's the author of Into His Presence, A Theology of Intimacy with God. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Professor Timothy Anderson. He's the author of Into His Presence, A Theology of Intimacy with God. He's a professor at Corbin University. White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham said Monday that she has no plans on bringing back the daily White House press briefings, saying reporters use them to make themselves famous. Ultimately, if the president decides that it's something we should do, we can do that. But right now, she said he's doing just fine. And to be honest, the briefings have become a lot of theater. And I think that a lot of reporters were doing it to get famous, end quote. She was speaking on Fox and Friends. It's been six months since a press secretary has held a traditional briefing in the White House press briefing room, according to Axios. In August, a group of Trump supporters led by conservative activist Scott Presler uh, went to West Baltimore for a massive cleanup operation following tweets sent by President Trump highlighting the dire condition in the area. Keeping to his promise, Pressler has since led cleanup efforts in Newark, New Jersey, Virginia Beach, Virginia. And on Saturday, Pressler and some 200 volunteers headed to Democrat-run Los Angeles, removing a stunning 50 tons of garbage, according to activists. The impressive feat, however, has gone widely unnoticed by the media. And 26 arrests in Washington, D.C. in the climate change protests over the last couple of days. And one in seven adults in New Orleans has a warrant out for his arrest. And finally, tax uh, tax backed by 2020 Democrats would hurt retirement accounts, a new report finds. On this day in history, in 2007, United Auto Workers walk off the job at General Motors plant in the first nationwide strike during auto contract negotiations since 1976. A tentative pact would end the walkout two days later. I think we're into our second week of the current UAW strike. On this day in 1789, President George Washington signs a Judiciary Act establishing America's federal court system and creating the post of Attorney General. On this day in 1869, thousands of businessmen are ruined in a Wall Street panic known as Black Friday after financier Jay Gould and James Fisk attempt to corner the gold market. On this day in 1934... 
Babe Ruth makes his farewell appearance as a player with the New York Yankees in a game against the Boston Red Sox. In 1960, the Howdy Doody show ends a nearly 13-year run with its final telecast on NBC. On this day in 1968, 60 Minutes premieres on CBS. The undercover police drama The Mod Squad premieres on ABC. And finally, on this day in 1996, the United States and 70 other countries become the first to sign a treaty at the United Nations to end all testing and development of nuclear weapons. The Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty has yet to enter into um, a force because of the refusal so far of eight nations, including the United States, to ratify it. Some of the uh, headlines, Biden calls for Trump impeachment, full whistleblower complaint to leak, Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton and Trump. More Dems back impeachment, 174 and counting. Representative John Lewis's fiery floor speech convinces some. Top Senate Democrat backs inquiry. Freshmen, these allegations are a threat to all we have sworn to protect. Republicans scramble. Giuliani, the president's uh, private attorney, reveals opposition research mission was requested by the administration. And it goes on and on and on. Well, President Trump said in a tweet that he will release on Wednesday a transcript of his July phone call to Ukrainian President. Uh, Zelensky, in which they reportedly discussed an investigation involving Joe Biden, it's initially his son, but his connection as well. I'm currently at the United Nations representing our country, but have authorized the release tomorrow of the complete, fully declassified and unredacted transcript of my phone conversation with President Zelensky of U- uh, Ukraine, President Trump wrote. You will see it was a friendly and totally appropriate call. No pressure and unlike Joe Biden and his son, no quid pro quo. This is nothing more than a continuation of the greatest and most destructive witch hunt of all time. He added the Democrats are so focused on hunting and hurting the Republican Party and the president that they are unable to get anything done because of it, including legislation on gun safety, lowering the prescription drug prices, infrastructure, etc. So bad for our country, end quote. Well, the dramatic flip the script moment could blunt the Democrats' newly energized push to begin a formal impeachment inquiry. We'll see. Based on a whistleblower's allegation that the president pressed the new Ukrainian leader during the phone call to investigate the former vice president and his son. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi today announced the formalization of an impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Now, I thought that was done last week when the hearings were held, but this is apparently something different or at least broader, saying the president must be held accountable for his betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and the betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Now, this is all before a transcript has been seen, the actual complaint has been seen, so it may be Uh, An accurate portrayal, it may not. The Speaker effectively endorsed the process, which to some degree has already been underway after facing fresh pressure from inside the caucus to act. Invoking the dark days of the American Revolution, she called on lawmakers to honor their constitutional oath to protect the country from all enemies, foreign, domestic and um, Uh, enemies foreign and domestic. Pelosi specifically charged that the administration had violated the law by not turning over a whistleblower complaint concerning Trump's July call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, citing testimony that the director of national intelligence is blocking the release of that complaint. She said, this is a violation of law. The law is unequivocal. Trump allegedly pushed Zelensky to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter. The president vowed Tuesday to release a complete transcript of his call with Zelensky, though it's unlikely to settle the issue in Congress. And President Trump accused the Democrats of presidential harassment after Pelosi made her 
announcement. Well, that announcement on Tuesday that the House is moving forward with the official uh, impeachment uh, raises the question, what exactly is impeachment under these circumstances and how hard would it be to impeach the president and actually remove him from office? Well, the average American, understandably, isn't an expert on impeachment. Only two presidents have been impeached by the House, Andrew Johnson in 1868 and Bill Clinton in 1999, but neither man lost his job. Impeachment is complicated and takes time. Parliamentary democracies can or republics, constitutional republics, quickly remove a prime minister when a majority of lawmakers cast a vote of no confidence in the leader. But in the U.S., the impeachment process is a much tougher task. So what is it? Impeachment is nothing to do with criminal prosecutions carried out by the U.S. Justice Department for violations of federal law, although such criminal violations may form a basis for impeachment. Instead, as outlined in the Guide to the Constitution, impeachment is the process set out In Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution, for Congress to remove from office the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, which, by the way, are not um, defined. Uh, There's also a second process that applies only to the president. The 25th Amendment provides for the temporary transfer of the powers of the presidency. To the vice president, if a president is unable to discharge the duties of his office, such as due to a physical or other disability. Under Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution, the House of Representatives has the sole power of impeachment. In other words, only the House can pass a resolution of impeachment alleging that a president has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Such a resolution, which requires only a simple majority vote, is similar to a criminal indictment by a grand jury. It is an unproven list of charges that a president has engaged in actions that warrant his impeachment. If the House passes such an impeachment resolution, then the process moves to the Senate. Under Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution, the Senate has the sole power to try all impeachments. The Senate, in essence, becomes a trial court with all the senators sitting as the jury and judge. Based on historic practice, members of the House can act as prosecutors. It is important to note, however, that it's entirely up to the Senate to decide whether to hold the trial. There's no obligation under the Constitution to do so. This means that even if the Democrat majority in the House votes to impeach President Trump, the Republican majority in the Senate could decide to not even consider removing him from office. House Democrats opposed to impeaching uh, the president, there are fewer of them now, say there is no point in passing an impeachment resolution because it would most likely be dead on arrival in the Senate. If the Senate does decide to hold an impeachment trial, the Constitution says the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court shall preside over said proceeding. It takes a vote of two-thirds of the members to Uh, members present in the Senate to convict any federal officer subject to an impeachment charge, including the president. The two-thirds vote to convict means that 67 votes are needed in the 100-member Senate to remove the president and other federal officers from office. That's a very high hurdle. It's probably impossible to leap over in the case of President Trump. Well, if the president is officially removed, then, of course, the vice president uh, takes his place and it moves forward. We'll watch with great interest what happens next as uh, the transcript of the conversation is going to be released tomorrow and efforts to uh, get the complaint from the inspector general or the the Department of Justice is also um, being called for. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Professor Timothy Anderson. He's a professor at Corbin University. His book, Into His Presence, A Theology of Intimacy with God. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Well, I've been looking forward to a conversation with my next guest, Professor Timothy Anderson. He's a professor of theology at uh, Corbin University, just down the road a piece. And his uh, book is titled Into His Presence, A Theology of Intimacy with God. Well, how should we define intimacy with God? Our answers, hopefully. Uh, to this question are largely based on what God has revealed about intimacy in the scriptures. But are they? Well, my guest again, uh, Tim Anderson, is a professor of theology and biblical studies at Corbin University. He has ministered with churches and pastors around the world for more than 35 years. And we're delighted that you made the trip down the street <laughs> to join us here uh, in studio today. Welcome. Great. Thank you, Georgine. It's great to be here. And again, it's great to see you again. Uh, appreciate you coming to Corbin last spring and we had a great time, and I, when I told stu- students where I was going, they and I said, Georgine Rice, and, and the lady who spoke in chapel, and they go, oh, yeah, so <laughs> at least the, those who weren't freshmen are freshmen this year. So Yeah, well, it was a pleasure, yeah. pleasure to go. Thanks. Well, this is a book on intimacy. It's a subject about which um, we have some mystery in thinking about what does it mean to be intimate with God? What does the scripture say about that? What should our goal be? What motivated you? Because there are other books on the subject to write on this uh, subject and a theology of intimacy. Well, at first, when I started thinking through this, is uh, probably as just a uh, young Christian and trying to recognize the own my own innate desire to draw close to God, and then throughout the as the Lord would have it just as your journey unfolds that you begin to have certain events that come that spark your desire to to study it more for yourself. And so I, for example, there was a time when I was doing a, a camp, leadership camp with Western Seminary, and, and I taught on the doctrine of God, and this seemed like it would be really important for them and me to understand and on my own journey and theirs. And then as uh, seminars and papers at conferences came up, and then one of my colleagues said, hey, you should do a class on this. And so I did a class on this, and, and it just seemed to grow. But one of the biggest things that came was my own personal devotions, where I have a little notebook that I include on the one side, things about my parents that I take notes when I talk to them on the phone or when, when I revisit them. And on the back side, I'd started this list of verses that had to do with intimacy with God. And then I began to notice patterns. I began to notice things that I kept seeing over and over again about what God was wanting us to have. And then it just evolved into something that I felt like, man, I think there's so much out there that um, is uncertain and trends and cultural uh, expectations. And, and so somebody should write a book on this. And so I did. Somebody did. Yeah. <laughs> happened to be you. You make the point that uh, our understanding of uh, intimacy with God has profound implications. This isn't something we should just consider lightly, but it really has uh, the capacity to impact just about everything in our walk with Lord, where our understanding of intimacy comes from, what our tradition is that may or may not be well informed by Scripture. Yeah, and it, it just reminds me of a story of a, uh, a few years ago. I had a student who had taken one of my classes, and he was really sharp. And, he, and I could tell that he had grown up in a Christian home. He was really thinking about the issues that we were talking about. I think it was my biblical worldview class. And and then uh, we had lunch together, and he was really struggling. And he was struggling with his faith, and he was struggling with um, <clears throat> whether or not God was real and uh, whether or not God was answering his prayers. And then as, as we delved deeper into his life, that he, he just— finally just opened up to say that he was struggling with, with, uh, with sin in his life in various ways. And so then he went away for the summer, and, and uh, we kept in touch a little bit, but then he came back, and I had, um, I had invited him to take one of my other classes on apologetics, and, and he came back, and I just knew he had tons of questions. And then 
as a result, uh, about two weeks into the semester, I said, hey, you should stop by my office. And he, he came by, and he just looked like a different person. Hmm. And as he began to tell me about his journey, he's, he said, I asked him, so I'm sure you have tons of questions uh, this semester and, and challenging things. And he said, no, not really. And I said, why? And he's because, number one, I don't have those same questions anymore. Number two, when I do have a question, I usually can answer it myself. And I said, so what happened? Well, this summer I got so tired of living for myself and hurting other people as a result. And so the big change is when I repented. Hmm. And so as I began to think about the scriptures on that, is one of the key elements is, is repentant means to turn. And so I began to see these themes that, that are actually lived out in real life and, and how students uh, and in my own ministry at the church and other things that begin to see in my own life that, that there are these themes that are absolutely essential and cannot be overlooked or, or, or gone past in, in quick ways of trying to get a fix out of a song or trying to uh, go to a worship service or, or talking to a friend or a quick prayer. It, it's, there's, there's things that the Lord expects from us. And so that theology came out of that. Mm. Now, when you talk about the theology of intimacy, when we think about being intimate with God, we think about him initiating the relationship mm-hmm. that we enjoy through Jesus Christ, that he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. Is there a role that we are to play in establishing that intimacy? To what degree are we responsible for how close we ultimately are with God in our understanding of a theology of intimacy? Because oftentimes I think we feel distant because of our own sin, or perhaps we're aloof, or maybe our tradition doesn't encourage us to press into God. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the, the passage that I talk about in my class that's our key passage for the semester, James 4.8. And it's, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And, and it's the capstone of, I think, all the biblical teaching on it. The, 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 thing, the trick is, is that when we look at that and you do a Google image search on James 4.8, you get somebody uh, with a sunset behind them on their knees, raising their hands to God in great joy. Well, the problem is the context there is um, incredible selfishness in the beginning. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you in verse 1? Isn't the source, the, the desires and the, the, the hedonism in your own life? And this is what's going on. And so you ask God for things, and he's not going to answer because you're not asking with right motives. And then he goes on, and, and, and then so the point of, of James at that point says, so draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Mourn and weep. So there has to be a process that we go through. And so you can't just put James 4.8 in isolation mm-hmm. on, a, on a bumper sticker or a mug or a poster or a nightlight. It has to be something in context. And so I think that, that our responsibility is, yes, to draw near, and yet draw near to whom and how. And so I think that um, we need to make sure that our, what we know about God and as we move toward him is accurate. Otherwise... Mm-hmm. It's like when my students come too close and they start calling me by my first name and start, you know, you know, patting you on the butt or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> hello, that's a little too close there because you don't have that relationship with mm-hmm. me. And so um, we need to be very careful about how we approach God in those ways. Always keeping in balance between God being too far away or God as more like us and our best buddy. So we need to be very careful about our approach. Let's talk about the definition of intimacy in the context of the Christian faith. What does it mean to be intimate with God in the way that we read in Scripture? Is it just knowing about him and knowing more details than the next guy? Is it a matter of real relationship where there is the closeness where you you know call God by his first name? Can you define that for us? Yeah. 
That's a great question. And I think that in my own little bunch of verses, I began to notice these patterns, and I put little letters next to them because I started noticing four elements. And the first element was anything that has to do with, with our relationship with God and closeness to him has to do with movement, and it is, God, is God's movement toward us and his, our movement toward him. And so, because there are times when we move away from him, and, and there are times when even he distances himself from us because of our own sin. So there's the first element of movement. But then there's also intimate knowledge. And so we have to understand that, that any relationship of intimacy has intimate knowledge. So I know that person so well that they, uh, they think my thoughts after me or they, my, uh, we say the same thing. Or There's so much about knowing that person well. And there's so many things in the scriptures that talk about God's intimate knowledge of us and the whole chapter on intimacy with God and the Holy Spirit and how he knows us and uh, with uh, the groanings passage mm-hmm. in Romans eight, and and that he just knows what we we want to ask, but we can't, and and so there's that intimate knowledge. Then there's also um, the intimate uh, place, because movement always leads someplace, and so there's often not just heaven, but there's this always moving toward a place of of being with God someplace, and and so in the shadow of His wings or whatever that might be. Uh, it is, and then the final element is that there is this contact, and I think that's where sometimes when the Bible talks in terms of metaphors like God's hands or uh, His uh, arms or or His face, uh, those things communicate uh, contact, and so um, God wants to have some kind of contact with us in a real sort of way. So those, I think, those four elements: um, uh, movement, knowledge place or location, and contact or touch. Those are very big themes. We're going to continue our conversation. It's about 46 minutes after 4 o'clock. We're talking with Professor Tim Anderson from Corbin University. His book is titled Into His Presence, A Theology of Intimacy with God. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. Oh, time flies when you're having fun. (laughs) We're talking with Professor Anderson from Corbin University. The book is titled Into His Presence, A Theology of Intimacy uh, with God. And in each of the chapters, they're... um, they're theologically rich, but they're also very practical. Because I think as we're thinking about, you know, really wanting to draw near to God and what that should look like and what we should expect and what hinders um, our intimacy with God and what um, our, what misunderstandings we may have about what that means. One of the things that you write about, and there's there's a lot here, is an understanding of the fall of humanity and its impact on um, our intimacy with God. We tend to, first of all, look to God, you know, where are you? What have you, <laughs> where have you drifted off to? Rather than considering our station and our, our utter uh, need for constant repentance and recognition that we're, you know, we're pressing into a holy God. Yeah, that chapter was, uh, I, I start out with a story of one of my children's least favorite books when they were growing up, they all had to read it. And uh, it was a story about a father and a, a daughter, and they never were able to connect because of, of their own uh, mental f- or, and psychological flaws. And so when it came down to the very end, the story, it's a short story uh, that ends with the father falling back and dying of a heart attack. And so just when they're about ready to climax and finally speak to each other, he dies. And, and so the, the author, Sherwood Anderson, talks about that everybody is in, in America and humans are, are what he calls grotesques. And he uses that to say we're all flawed in some way, and I think we're, that's true. And so the Bible speaks in terms of these these flaws that we have that make it 
um, impossible for us to draw near to God. And so I start out with talking about wickedness. And Bobby is very clear, obviously, if we do wicked things, and we don't like to use that word too much anymore because that's reserved for people on, you know, in the state pen, but uh, here at, down in Salem, right next to Corbin University. But, um, but then also the, there's, there's even things that the Bible talks about as far as distraction, mm-hmm. where, where um, Mary and Martha's story and how the distraction kept her from drawing close to the Lord. And, and so uh, we need to be very careful that we can so easily drift. I think it's like being out on a, uh, an inner tube um, off, off the beach, and that if we're not careful and we pursue the Lord in that movement, then we can easily uh, drift away. And next thing you know, we're, we're way out in the surf and, and have to call for the lifeguard. And so uh, we can easily be distracted by all sorts of things. And so uh, we have a great responsibility, but we are definitely affected by the effects of the fall that, that have always, from the very beginning in the garden. I think so often we imagine that God is so repulsed by what we have done, as if he's sort of surprised of our capacity for sin, that he is somehow retreating and that um, we don't have access because what I have done is created a gulf that cannot be uh, c- cannot be passed. And so many people say, you know, I-, I can't press into God because of what I've done, forgetting that he has given us access and a-, a way to get, you know, to restore what's been lost if we've grieved the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so cool to follow up that chapter with a, a couple chapters later on God as Father mm-hmm. and talk about that he is, uh, he is a good, uh, intimate Father and that even if you do not have a good relationship with your earthly father, you have somebody in your life that God has given you that fills that role in some small way and that you he's that way and so don't dismiss that so the prodigal son story is is an incredible example of of a father looking wanting the uh, the intimacy and then when the son returns in in repentance then the father runs which in that culture they never mm-hmm, did and mm-hmm. then lifting up his robes and then hugging him and kissing him on his neck and and all that close touch movement um all that together is such a great uh, microcosm of, of intimacy with God and that, the movement that needs to take place. Yeah. You also write about the, you know, God reveals himself to us and he describes himself in ways that we can relate to, that you know, his eye is upon us. He puts his arms around us. These anthropomorphic descriptions of God's embrace of um, his children when they've come to him through Jesus Christ. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, and how that helps us understand, it doesn't reflect, you know, that God is a real physical being, but right. it does tell us something about his heart toward us. Yeah, and they're, they're basically metaphors. Mm-hmm. And not just asking, like when we learn in Bible study methods, um, what is that therefore, therefore? I'm starting to think, what is that metaphor therefore? And so we need to say, what is God trying to say when he says about his face or his eyes and uh, about his hands? And those are like, um, they, they're more than just like God's eyes are like his omniscience. That's, that's pretty stale, even though it does teach a theological truth. I think it's more than that. It's kind of like a gesture where God, when you motion somebody with your hand uh, to come over to you with your arms, and you don't even have to say anything. I think there's this, this uh, impression that, that only those Im- uh, metaphors can give. So uh, it's kind of like when God hears uh, the little boy, the Bible talks a lot about um, God hearing his people and, and his ears drawing near or bending low to his people in their time of need. And it kind of reminds me of a little story of this little boy or a little girl when asked about what is prayer. And she says, oh, it's easy. That's when God puts his big ear next to my think. Mm. 
And I, I think that's such a fitting yeah. analogy of God and his ear putting, it's not just that he knows everything or he hears whether or not I'm naughty or nice, like some kind of cosmic Santa Claus. I think that he actually bends low and, and purposely hears everything that's going on in my life so I can communicate with him. And so his eyes are the same way. It's not just the piercing gaze of somebody who's angry at me, but, but the, 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 it's the eyes of the Lord are on, on those who, who he loves. And then it's coupled with his face, which says uh, in that context, in that world, it's everything about who he is turns toward us. And so uh, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and, and the face of the Lord shines upon you. And it's like these are incredible things if we just meditate on them and realize those are really the way God sees me. And those are really things that I can just lean into and begin to sense in a real way these huge biblical themes that are so rich and, and draw me to, to actual, an actual person. So if you think about what person would you, would you love to see the face of more than anybody— so if I think about my wife and I want to see her face and I want to see it light up and her eyes sparkle, like from the time I asked her to marry me in this park that we both could have been mugged at, it's another story. <laughs> but, um, but when she lit up, even though it was kind of dark there, it still brightened. And I think God, we need to recognize that those are the images that are, are what God, by Scripture teaches about how God sees us. Yeah, and knowing who and what we are, that's how he sees us. You're right. That that just makes you want to press into him as well. You also write about um, uh, Christ and the marriage images that are also in Scripture. I think for women, it's much easier to accept and understand that than perhaps for men. Um, but explain a little bit that that use of an image to explain to us what this intimate relationship is and should be. I, I think that this is getting it back to the question of what is that metaphor there for? Mm-hmm. And so we often extend too far and we make it romantic when I don't think that that was what the biblical world was talking about in a romance. And, and some people even say that, that the ultimate fulfillment of that is is sec- in sexual intimacy with a husband and wife when that's really not the point of that image in the scriptures. It's about, first and foremost, loyalty. Uh, it's about... Uh, anticipation and preparation for the marriage uh, ceremony. It's about um, in the in the New Testament. It's about uh, the the submission and trust of the church for Christ because we are His bride. We anticipate His coming and long for His coming. Come, Lord Jesus, as the bride says. So there's these themes that that often we should have a constant longing hmm. for for Christ and and that. There, and we should always be loyal to him and never go after things that would separate us from him. So those are the kind of things that go along with that image. You write that our approach must not merely be a sound exposition of the biblical theme of intimacy with God. Our knowledge must be intimate and move us toward him to an intimate place of close contact. And the book really encourages us to understand what that means, how to do that, and God's longing for that um, with us. I, I so wish we had more time, but I would encourage our listeners. In fact, I'm going to be giving away a couple of copies of your book today. Okay. Uh, Into His Presence, A Theology of Intimacy with God. Uh, Professor Anderson is the author from Corbin. It's just a great read. I can see it's something that you would study on your own, but also in a small group to just work through the chapters and better understand God's uh, call to draw near to him. Thank you so much for your work and for joining us today. Thank you, Georgina. It was a real privilege. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you back. Uh, by the way, I am going to give away two copies of uh, Into His Presence, A Theology of Intimacy with God. Um, and I'll explain how to do that in just a few minutes. But I want to let you know that coming up uh, this hour, we're going to talk with Brett Schaefer. He is the J. Kingham Fellow of, in International Regulatory Affairs at Heritage's Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom. We'll talk about China and its growing influence in the United Nations. We'll also talk with Phil Vischer. He is uh, returning to Veggie Tales. There are 18 new episodes that are going to be released uh, soon. And he's also written the Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids, returning to uh, what you've come to expect early on, the generation that grew up on VeggieTales. So looking forward to uh, talking with him about that. We've been talking uh, in the earlier part of the program of some of what's going on uh, during the day. Uh, a lot going on in Washington and in New York. The New York, the uh, United Nations, of course, uh, is meeting. And there's a lot going on in Washington over whether or not the president uh, attempted to uh, use a foreign power to influence the outcome of an election. He has indicated that he's going to release the transcript, unredacted, declassified of that conversation. That probably won't be enough, uh, given that impeachment has been the undercurrent for quite some time prior to this. Uh, and they're also pushing for the release of the whistleblower uh, and that information. Now, one of the rumors associated with this, and at this point, it's difficult to know what's reliable information, is that the individual whistleblower who brought this to the attention of the uh, inspector general did not have firsthand knowledge of the conversation. Um, what difference will that make in this moving forward? We'll have to wait and see. Now, we don't know when or if that is going to be uh, released, but we do know that the unredacted version of that conversation is going to be made available tomorrow, and that perhaps will... Um, clear some things up, although I I doubt that it will be satisfactory. Uh, Continuing to look at some of what uh, developed over the course of the day, the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, who was in the U.S. for the United Nations meeting, claimed in an exclusive interview today that America, not Iran, is the key supporter of Middle East terrorism. That's a rather interesting claim. He was in New York, as I mentioned, for the United Nations General Assembly, and he claimed that President Trump has been misguided in his criticism of Iran. He said, I'm amazed at the interpretations of Mr. Trump vis-a-vis terrorism. Today, America, unfortunately, is the supporter of terrorism in our region, and wherever America has gone, terrorism has expanded in the wake. Rouhani pointed to U.S. military involvement in Syria without the permission of President Bashar al-Assad. As an example of what he considered to be such American terrorism, Uh, the country that is uh, present and flying over the airspace of and bombarding the soil of the country of Syria without permission of the government of the United States of America. He says um, uh, Mr. Wallace, who was conducting the interview, had asked Rouhani about Trump's U.N. speech earlier in the day in which he referenced Iran's bloodlust and fanatical quest for nuclear weapons when the Iranian leader gave uh, that response. Earlier this month, Rouhani um, told the British Parliament in a speech that Tehran would continue to deflect Washington's overtures for a bilateral meeting. There have been a lot of offers for talks, but our answer will always be negative, he said, according to the BBC. However, Iran would be open to having a multilateral talk if the United States agreed to scrap its economic penalties targeting Iran. Uh, And those penalties are having a significant uh, impact on their economy. Well, in 2015, the P5 plus one, the United States, UK, China, France, Russia, plus Germany, penned a nuclear pact with Iran and the European Union. President Trump announced last year that the United States was leaving that joint comprehensive plan of action which he called the worst deal ever for America, maintaining that Iran was violating the deal. There was a lot of criticism about that deal. 
President Trump withdrew from it. Well, speaking before the United Nations today, President Trump praised the country's religious freedom record and cited figures that suggest the rest of the world has much work to do as he announced new funding to protect religious uh, sites as well as businesses uh, uh, and partnerships to fuel the cause. He said our nation it was founded on the idea that our rights do not come from government but from God. Regrettably, the freedom enjoyed in America is rare in the world, end quote. The president said that he had asked Vice President Mike Pence to double-check the figure of 80% of the world's population living in areas that restrict religious freedom. According to the Pew Research, 83% of the population lives in places with high or very high restrictions, mostly targeting religious minorities. The president went on to say today, with one clear voice, the United States calls on the nations of the world to end religious persecution. The vice president stated that Trump was the first world leader to chair a meeting on religious freedom at the United Nations. Seeking international consensus on religious freedom, he called out Iran, Iraq, China, Venezuela and Nicaragua for their violations and mentioned the terrorist tragedies that struck down uh, Jews in Pittsburgh, Muslims in New Zealand and Christians in Sri Lanka. Under the president's leadership, the vice president said the United States passed the Genocide Recovery and Persecution Response Act to protect religious minorities in the Middle East. And the State Department's International Religious Freedom Fund dispersed 435 rapid response grants since 2018, aiding 2,000 victims of persecution. A year ago, the administration doubled its funding for Christians and religious minorities returning to Iraq. As president, protecting religious freedom is one of my highest priorities and always uh, has been, he said, who today pledged an additional $25 million to protect religious sites and relics around the world that are under threat. He urged the global community to join in measures to prevent the intentional destruction of religious sites and relics, including attacks on houses of worship, which is uh, prevalent all across the globe. The entire American left, the mainstream media, the environmentalist movement and Democratic politicians in particular are celebrating the involvement of teenagers and even younger children in protesting the world's inaction with regard to global warming. Dennis Prager writes, and not just the American left, of course, the left throughout the world is celebrating a 16 year old Swedish girl whose contempt for adults is breathtaking is an international hero. Congressional Democrats invited her to testify in Congress, and the United Nations has likewise invited her. The mayor and city council of New York further politicized their city's public schools by allowing students to skip school to actively participate in a global warming protest. The message of young climate change activists is, you adults aren't doing your job. As a result, we have no future. As a a sympathetic reporter, are there any non-sympathetic reporters? For the Los Angeles Times put it, teens are still waiting for a sign that their elders get it. Well, the Times coverage is typical. It reported, underneath the activism lies a simple truth. Young people are incredibly scared about climate change. They see it as a profound injustice and an existential threat to their generation and those that will follow. They do worry, and they they worry um, kind of a lot, said one environmental psychologist at uh, Orebro University in Sweden, Ariel Martinez-Cohen, an 18-year-old Los Angeles activist with the youth climate group Zero Hour, remembers reading a report from an Australian think tank that warned the human species could face extinction by 2050 if society doesn't get its act together. I almost imagine like an apocalyptic-type thing happening, Ariel says. Many people... Many young people say they can't fathom bringing kids of their own into the world. It's not ethical. It's literally a burning house. That's something that's not realistic, agreed her twin sister, Yena. And how can you even think about college or contemplate their careers when faced with such uncertainty? 
Now, I grew up with the same level of threat. Um, we were going to be overpopulated. We were going to be frozen. We were going to, it went back and forth. It's something I feel every single day, said Yenna. I work really hard at school and I do all these things and I'm like, what am I working for? Do I have a future? They believe that um, the end of the world is imminent. Well, it's critical to remember that hysterias such as Russian collusion with the Trump campaign, endemic and systematic racism in America, the heterosexual AIDS crisis in America, the rape culture on American college campuses are oxygen to a biological life of thought. No oxygen, no life, no hysteria, no left. Apparently, however, the left-wing hysteria about global warming leading to a virtual extinction of life on Earth hasn't moved enough adults. Many adults who do deny that the Earth is getting warmer, such as Danish writer and environmentalist thinker Bjorn Lomborg, do deny that the threat is existential and do believe that the left's solutions, such as the Green New Deal, will damage the world far more than it will, will carbon emissions. Proof that the left is hysterical is its unwillingness to promote nuclear power. And that takes us back to the children. If you can't sell your hysteria to adults, he writes, try kids. And that is what the left has done. After all, no one is as malleable or as easily indoctrinated as children to believe that their life is imminently in danger, that they will not have an adulthood. Consider this. If the left didn't tell them the world is going to end, they wouldn't worry about it. They'd be enjoying their young lives, maybe even learning to appreciate that they live in the freest country at the most prosperous time in human history. Instead... Uh, they live in the uh, in their grip of existential eco anxiety. This is but more um, one more way in which the left abuses children, along with telling them that they are neither boys nor girls, but whatever the latter chooses to be, teaching them contempt for their country and depriving them of the greatest source of morality, meaning, community, and happiness. Any of the Judeo-Christian religions. It's depressing and it's frightening. The scariest movies are those featuring brainwashed children. This horror show is happening in real life. Up next, we'll talk with Brett Schaefer. Stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, James Carafano, writing for the Daily Signal, points out that Turtle Bay is awash with heads of state this week. They've come to New York for the annual meeting of the United Nations General Assembly. President Trump and Secretary Pompeo, they're among those in attendance and they come with an agenda of their own. Item one for the Americans is to remind world leaders in subtle and not so subtle ways that Beijing is up to no good. Well, Chinese influence in the United Nations was rising well before President Trump entered the Oval Office. And as China becomes more powerful economically and militarily, its influence and presence in the United Nations will likewise grow. Given their priorities, the U.S. and like-minded nations cannot neglect the ramifications of this trend. Well, here to talk with us about that is Brett Schaefer. He is the J. Kingham Fellow in International Regulatory Affairs at the Heritage's uh, Margaret Thatcher Center for freedom. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk a little bit about Chinese influence. Now, some are suggesting that this is the result of the Trump administration. But as you point out in a commentary, this happened long before um, President Trump took to the Oval Office. It really began with the previous administration. Sure. And there's there's just no disputing the fact that Chinese influence in the organization has been increasing and been increasing steadily over the past decade. If just looking at trends in Chinese uh, nationals who are employed in the UN, you see that number rising. But more importantly, you see Chinese nationals elected to leadership positions 
in key UN organizations, that has been increasing. And uh, it's not just a Trump administration phenomenon. This, uh, currently, there's uh, four Chinese nationals leading four of the 15 UN specialized agencies. And people have been quick to hop on Trump's, uh, to criticize Trump for not blocking that or not, uh, or for failing to prevent that uh, increase in Chinese leadership. But people are overlooking the fact that in, uh, under the Obama administration in 2015 and 2016, Chinese leadership and also was in charge of four of the uh, 15 specialized agencies. So this is not a new phenomenon in terms of just the Trump administration, but it is a recent phenomenon in terms of the last decade where we've been seeing this increase in influence. Now, one of the reasons there is concern is that China is not a benign force internationally and that uh, those who uh, those Chinese uh, leaders are not just representing from a neutral standpoint the interests of the globe, but uh, rather the interests of the Chinese government. You offer an example in a commentary uh, that I uh, cited a moment ago uh, that they're actually going to hold those individuals accountable and may hold them criminally uh, liable for failing to um, hold up the party line. That's right. Uh, when you take a look at the way the United States approaches the international institutions like the United Nations, we are dedicated to a lot of the founding principles. In fact, we helped draft a lot of those founding principles of the UN back in 1945. Things like self-determination, things like human rights, things like promotion of free markets around the world to increase prosperity and standards of living among people around the world. Well, China's not really interested in all those things. China's interested in one thing and one thing only, which is advancing the power and influence of the Chinese state. And so when they look at their nationals in the organization, they see opportunities to influence the organization to their benefit, as opposed to the U.S. You know, the U.S. um, has a number of different uh, citizens working inside the U.N. system, but they're free agents. The U.S. does not threaten to arrest their family. They don't have threaten their livelihoods. They don't threaten their um, their interests in any other way. They're free to actually fulfill the instructions of the organization as imposed on them by the member states or by the bureaucracy itself. China doesn't see it that way. And you know this because of the way that China acts towards its citizens that are working in the U.N., when they go afoul of the interests of China, the Chinese state comes down on them like a hammer. There was a Chinese national in charge of Interpol. Most of your listeners have probably heard of Interpol. It's mm-hmm. an international police organization. It's not part of the UN system, but it is an international organization, very prominent. Uh, well, the uh, Chinese national was in charge of this organization, and he essentially was disappeared for months by the Chinese government, and he was eventually charged with a crime of violating party policy in China and not obeying the instructions of the Chinese state. And so they actually arrested one of the most prominent Chinese nationals in the international system merely because he did not obey the instructions of the state and and advocated policies that were counter to to those of the Chinese government. This is an extraordinary lesson, uh, not only for Chinese nationals working in the UN, sending the signal that they are not immune to China's influence or intimidation merely because they are an international bureaucrat, but it should also be a lesson to the United States and other countries around the world to know that uh, UN officials who are supposed to take a pledge and, a, and an oath of neutrality 
that is not going to apply if that, if that employee happens to be Chinese. Mm. You also write that as Chinese influence has grown, so has its ability to assert policies at odd with American interests or designed to blunt UN mechanisms deemed troublesome or problematic to China. And you offer some examples. Talk a little bit about the use of veto power and uh, how they're wielding their influence uh, in New York. Sure. Uh, China is one of the five permanent members of the Security Council, along with the United States, Russia, France, and the UK. Each of those permanent members of the Security Council has a veto. They can stop the organization or the uh, the UN Security Council from passing resolutions if they deploy that veto. So the United States does that, and it does that um, frequently to protect Israel from what we consider to be biased or unreasonable resolutions condemning them uh, for various actions. China does it as well, um, historically not very often, but, but increasingly frequently. And when you take a look at when they are using the veto, you see it over and over again to protect repressive regimes from being held to account for their repressive actions. Zimbabwe, Syria, uh, Libya, these are the countries that China is deploying its veto to try and protect from UN condemnation scrutiny for human rights abuses, or even genocide. You point out that since 2013, China has become increasingly assertive in UN human rights institutions, yeah. promoting its own interpretation of international norms and mechanisms. That's right. Uh, what China wants to do in the UN system is essentially shield governments from UN scrutiny. They want to promote a different type of human rights, where uh, they're, in, in essence, promoting uh, economic, social, and cultural rights are, are the terms that are used there. And these are rights like the right to water, the right to health. And these, uh, these rights are able to China promote them because they can go to the UN and say, hey, we're able to provide water and health to our citizens. But those are just as important as little things like democracy or the right to a, free, uh, a just trial or um, uh, the right to uh, freedom of expression, these, these fundamental rights that uh, that the United States and historically have been at the core of human rights protections around the world, freedom of religion, freedom of association, et cetera. But China doesn't value those because they see those as disruptive domestically, so they instead try and promote these other rights. And they use their influence not only to shield themselves from scrutiny for, for instance, religious persecution and the arrest of Uyghurs in Western China, but also to try and blunt uh, the ability of these UN human rights institutions from effectively carrying out their mandate to look into human rights situations and to promote fundamental freedoms and basic human rights on, uh, in the political and civil uh, areas. You point out that as China becomes more powerful economically and militarily, that its influence and presence in the United Nations is going to grow. What recourse, so what role can the United States mm-hmm. and other like-minded nations play in preventing China having an outsized influence that conflicts with the core values of the United States, certainly, and the United Nations. Yeah, and what I mean by that is the way that the UN hires people uh, is somewhat archaic and somewhat arcane. It's based off of a couple of different factors, including share of the global population, including the contributions to the organization. And China's contributions to the UN have been rising sharply as its economy has grown. And so you would expect that uh, it's uh, the employment of Chinese nationals by the UN is going to increase. But what we have to be careful about is that we hold Chinese nationals to the same standards of neutrality and uh, impartiality in terms of Chinese uh, efforts to get them to uh, advance Chinese interests in the organization are blunted. If they overtly do that, 
the UN needs to to uh, to hold them to account and dismiss them for acting outside of their responsibilities and and violating their oath of neutrality in the organization. Are you optimistic? It's going to be extremely difficult because China's uh, influence, both through its Belt and Road Initiative, through its ability to uh, intimidate and bribe other countries uh, to support it in various venues, uh, and also, frankly, through the willingness of China to deploy its diplomats to intimidate UN officials, both physically and otherwise, and NGOs. They, they're notorious for harassing NGOs that come to the UN to try and testify about Chinese abuses uh, on human rights issues and other issues as well. Uh, and so it's, uh, we're facing an uphill battle. Uh, the good news is that the U.S. is finally focusing on this. If you could look back 10 years ago, the idea was that if you welcome China into the international community, into the United Nations, into the World Trade Organization, that bringing them inside the tent would moderate their behavior and they would become more Western in their uh, attitudes and in their activities and in their approach uh, to both to economic issues, but hopefully also to political issues. This was the idea that as you expand economic freedom in China, it's also going to lead to political freedom. Um, but as the president said today before the U.N., we've seen this uh, experiment played out over the past 20 years, and it's basically been proven to be a false uh, belief. China has not moderated its political behavior at all. Uh, they've instead taken advantage of the economic opportunities before them to enrich themselves, improve the standards of living for their citizens, that their political freedoms uh, are just as repressed as uh, as they've ever been. Mm. Well, Brett Schaefer, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Again, Brett Schaefer is the J. Kingham Fellow in International Regulatory Affairs at the Heritage Foundation's Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom. Coming up next, we'll talk with Phil Vischer. There's a new VeggieTales uh, series coming out, and Phil Vischer is all over it. 18 episodes coming, as well as a Bible for Kids, the Laugh and Learn Bible, also by Phil Vischer, the founder of VeggieTales. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, many of the children of the 90s raised on the catchy songs of Larry the Cucumber and the thoughtful lessons of Bob the Tomato are now raising children of their own. Well, in October, that new generation is going to have a fresh slew of VeggieTales adventures as the animated series returns through a new partnership, Trinity Broadcasting Network, Big Idea Content Group, and NBC Universal. The good news is, Phil Vischer is also a part of that project. 18 new episodes in the series go deeper than the Veggie Tales of yesteryear, but follow the same catchy formula that uh, uh, captured the attention of children all across the globe. Well, joining us to talk about this new venture and a new children's Bible, the Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids, is Phil Vischer. And we are delighted to have you with us, and congratulations on your new project. Well, thanks, and thanks for having me on today. Well, we're excited. Veggie Tales um, has been around for a very long time, but there was a difference in the way it was uh, uh, the approach of the series after uh, you left it. Can you give us a bit of that history and where we stand today? Uh, yeah, I, I created Bob and Larry in 1990 and uh, launched the first videos in 1990. 
three. And then um, I ran it and attempted to build. I decided I was going to be the next Walt Disney, and I was building the, the Disney company all over again. Uh, got a little bit ahead of myself and uh, ended up running the company into bankruptcy in 2003. It was sold in 2004. Uh, new owners came in, kept making more videos, but I was no longer involved. And then they sold it, and then new owners started making videos, and I was no longer involved. And they sold it, and then new owners started making videos with Netflix, and I was no longer involved. And um, it just changed in ways that some of the fans weren't, weren't wild about um, until about two years ago, Universal bought the company that owned VeggieTales, and they reached out to me after TBN had reached out to them to say, hey, could we do something with VeggieTales? And they all decided uh, we would like Phil to be involved again. So they reached out to me and said, could you make these feel like the original VeggieTales, like the ones that we all remember that we bumped into first? And I said, I would love to do that. Thank you so much for asking me. <laughs> so this is going to be like the, the old days, if you will, with short, spiritually focused Bible stories. Uh, yes, yes. Basically, the TBM threw out the idea that they'd been kicking around of what if it was kind of like the Muppet show and it was Bob and Larry in a theater trying to put on a show together. And and I got excited because I'd actually had that idea about uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Wouldn't it be fun to do something like a variety show like The Muppet Show, which was my favorite TV show when I was a kid? Because Bob the Tomato is a lot like Kermit the Frog, and he's always trying to put on the show and getting frustrated when it doesn't go well. And if we do it this way, not only can we see what happens in front of the, the curtain, you know, the, what you're supposed to see, we can also go behind the scenes. We can go backstage and see how poorly it's going, how frustrated Bob is getting, the crazy idea is that Mr. Lunt or Pa Grape are suggesting that you, know, you would never hear about if you only watch what you're supposed to see. So mm -hmm. we've written 18 episodes based in this little theater where Bob and Larry are trying to put on a nightly variety show uh, answering a kid's question, just like the old classic veggies. Now, in an interview with Christianity Today, you say that you, you're uh, leaning on spiritual maturity and lessons learned from the past to take this new 18-episode series deeper. What do you mean by that, and what can uh, folks who love VeggieTales expect? Well, when I started writing VeggieTales, I was 25 years old. And so I, you know, had the spiritual maturity of a 25-year-old. And now I'm 53 years old, and I've spent a whole lot more time uh, walking with God than I had before. So, uh, and another thing, by making the episode shorter again, I was able to pull up more uh, obscure, smaller Bible stories that are rich in meaning, but not necessarily name recognition. So you know, Paul and Silas in prison, uh, uh, Peter and John healing the beggar outside the temple, the crippled beggar, or Old Testament, smaller, more obscure stories like the story of Abigail and Nabal to teach kids about wisdom and how wisdom is even more valuable than knowledge. So I'm able to go deeper into the Bible and just having lived more and spent more time walking with God. Uh, pull out lessons that are more spiritually rich when I'm 53 than when I was mm -hmm. 25. Now, in addition to the the 18 episode series that goes a bit deeper, you've also published, and I believe it uh, was published this month, uh, your first children's Bible, the Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids. Tell us about that. Yeah, after uh, Veggie Tales, when I was no longer writing for Veggie Tales, I felt like God wanted me to take kids deeper into the Bible than we were able to do in the format of you know happy bouncy talking vegetables. And so I did a series called uh, What's in the Bible? It's a video series to walk kids all the way through the Bible from beginning to end. And that took about five years, and I learned so much from doing that series 
that I wanted to bring that learning into a book form. So we did a, it's a new children's storybook Bible. It's called the Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids. And it's 52 stories from the Bible, starting with creation and ending with the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation at the end of Revelation. And the goal is, uh, it's very easy to tell kids, you know, kind of our favorite Bible stories, Noah's Ark, uh, Daniel and the Lion's Den, David and Goliath. Those stories are easy to tell, but just telling those stories doesn't give a, a child an overview of the entire Bible. Mm-hmm. So the entire Bible tells a story. It's not just about the stories in the Bible. It's about the story in the Bible. And what I can do with this children's Bible is take kids from beginning to end and tell them the entire macro story of what God is doing uh, in our lives and in our world, and we can invite kids to be a part of that big story. Because kids love to be a part of a big story. It's why they love Star Wars and, and Harry Potter and, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. We want to be part of a big story. And when we, don't tell, when we tell the Bible in bits and pieces, they can't see the big story. So that's what we can do with something like this new kids' Bible. Oh, incredible. And that's currently available? It is out. Yeah, it came out two weeks ago. So it's out there now. You can find it on Amazon or wherever you buy uh, kids' books. Well, excellent. Well, let me ask you, what's your dream for these uh, new projects? What do you hope for the future and moving forward and how these are going to impact young people in this generation as you impacted their parents' generation? With most of the things that I do, I, I have to confess I'm not just aiming for the kids. Quite often in church, we'll go to young parents and say, now you really need to be discipling your kids. You know, it's not all up to us. You need to get in there and disciple your kids. And we forget to ask, wait a minute, did anyone disciple you? Were you ever discipled? You know, do, we're, we're asking people to teach how to ride a bike when they've never learned themselves. So what I like to do is create resources that a whole family can watch together. And that's partly why the humor is so important, because if it's not funny, it's not just that kids get bored, it's that their parents get bored. They don't want to watch it either. (laughs) But if I can create something, whether it's a book or a movie or a TV show, that the whole family can sit down and watch together, they can learn intergenerationally. And when the whole family learns about God's Word, they can reinforce it with each other, they can share it with each other, and it becomes part of the fabric of their family. And that's what we need to encourage. What a great uh, devotional tool as well. When you made your original series, most parents probably got it on VHS. Maybe they had a cassette tape, then maybe DVD. Today, digital download. In what format will the new VeggieTales series come and how can our listeners find it? Yeah, the new veggies will start initially broadcasting on the Trinity Broadcast Network, but they will also uh, show up on streaming platforms. I'm not sure which ones. That's up to them. But it should be available pretty broadly. There's a there's a Christmas uh, episode that we did first that is coming out in October on DVD, and then it'll broadcast on TBN in November. And then the rest of the series will follow early next early uh, the first half of next year and should show up in, on multiple platforms so people can find it easily. Well, I have to tell you, I was pretty excited when I knew that your name was uh, associated with the VeggieTales series, that there are 18 new episodes. I'm an adult. I don't have children in the home, but I have loved VeggieTales just like so many others, and I'm looking forward to this new series. So first of all, congratulations, and thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you. I was excited to know that I was involved again, too. Yeah. Catchy songs, because, you know, we've all been singing them for years. We need some new material. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> we need more songs. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, Phil Vischer, he is involved in the 18-episode series that goes a bit deeper. They're going to be initially broadcast on Trinity Broadcast Network, but other platforms, as he said, so keep your eyes and ears open for that. As for the Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids, that is currently available, so you can take advantage of that right away. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow I'm going to be off. As I mentioned, Dan Rice is having a bit of a surgery. It's uh, not one of those life-threatening kind. It's a day surgery, so I'm going to hang out with him, get him through that. On Thursday, we'll join uh, John M. Pollard. He's the author of Chester A. Arthur, The Accidental President. In fact, he only became president because the president at the time was assassinated. We'll tell you more about that story and who Chester A. Arthur was. Uh, We're also going to talk with Pastor Victor Alvarez. Conquest 2019 took place a couple of weeks ago. He's going to provide something of a wrap-up. And what's next? What are the plans for this ministry moving forward? So we'll talk with him about that. And then on Friday, we're anticipating taking a look at the lighter side of the news. We haven't done that for a little while, so I'm looking forward uh, to being live and in studio for a fun Friday afternoon. We were talking a few moments ago about Phil Vischer and VeggieTales. It's a series that impacted so many young people a generation ago, but it's back and uh, Phil Vischer is involved. So that's always encouraging. And also the Laugh and Learn um, Bible for Kids. I wanted to also tell you, and I was not aware of this. I try to stay on top of things fairly well. But the new trailer for Heaven Quest has been released. Now, you might be asking, what on earth is Heaven Quest? Well, it is the story inspired by John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress that's now been made into a movie. King Street Pictures uh, have released the trailer for this groundbreaking faith-based fantasy adventure film, Heaven Quest, A Pilgrim's Progress. And as I mentioned, it's based on the iconic 1678 novel, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Now, I don't know if um, generations beyond my own read this religiously, but Pilgrim's Progress has been a very popular tome for many generations, and this is a reintroduction to this generation. Well, the Pilgrim's Progress, cited as the first novel written in English, has been translated into over 200 languages, has never been out of print. Now, the beloved Christian allegory is going to be put to film in Heaven Quest. You can check out that trailer online. Pilgrim's Progress is an amazingly crafted allegory, and... Um, if you've read it, um, to read it yourself, read it to your children, this is a great way to reintroduce the story. Um, many who have been exposed to it recently recognize that it needs an update, a new vision, a reimagining. At least that's what the producers, King Street Pictures, uh, suggest, something relevant and gritty. Well, the director, Matt Billen, has done just that. In a statement with the Christian Post, he points out that the uh, new release of Heaven Quest, A Pilgrim's Progress, brings it into the 21st century while telling the same compelling story. Filmed on a micro-budget, one five-hundredth of a typical studio film, Heaven Quest was filmed without a full script, with only two, uh, a tiny cra- uh, crew rather. Filmmakers reimagined what may have uh, happened before the Pilgrim's Progress. The executive producer is Darren Williams, and he says over the last decade of making his genre-busting documentaries, Matt Billen has been by his side pretty much every step of the way. It was really no surprise to him then uh, that he would attempt something as outlandish as Heaven Quest for his uh, first feature film. Well, for this film, he not only had a smaller budget to work with than most of the documentaries that are produced, but um, he broke nearly every rule for first-time filmmakers. Don't shoot at night. 
Don't shoot in many hard-to-reach locations. Don't shoot without a script. Don't make a fantasy film that requires special effects. Well, the list goes on and on, but according to his friend, again, executive producer Darren Wilson... He says, I think what people will see when they watch this movie is something that uh, comes from a place of true passion. The people who break artistic rules are typically the ones who are focused on their own ideas to birth something unique to the world. Matt's definitely done that with this movie. Well, the new trailer reveals the film's stunning cinematography and CGI work while uh, giving viewers a glimpse into the action-packed storyline. And I hope you'll check out the uh, the new trailer. All you have to do is uh, enter Heaven Quest. Um, the movie, or Heaven Quest, A Pilgrim's Progress, and you can find that. But it is an action-packed storyline, and again, um, cinematography, CGI work, giving viewers a glimpse into the action-packed storyline, all of that in the trailer. He goes on to say, I really wanted to do something a bit different in the faith film space and felt Pilgrim's Progress would allow me to push some boundaries and try some new things. Yes, it needed reimagining and some adaptation for contemporary and savvy audiences, but that's what I tried to do. This is Mr. Billen now speaking. It's all there in that story, but we wanted to build a world where we could tell more story in the future. Um, Billen, again, who is the producer of this, uh, the director of this film. Heaven Quest brought together an international cast of well-known actors. The cast includes one of South Korea's most successful stars, In Pyo Cha, as well as... Um, Kermi Lozano and Fernando Romero from Mexico, uh, Peta Sargent from Australia, Ricky Kim from South Korea, and well-known American Christian actor Alan Powell as one of the leads in the film. Now, I'm not familiar with any of those names, but apparently these are seasoned actors uh, that will be uh, participating in it. Well, on October 25th, you might want to make note of this, Heaven Quest is going to be available for 48 hours to stream at Heaven Quest Film before its official release in 2020. So if you'd like to see the film, you can stream it for 48 hours beginning October 25th. Again, Heaven Quest Film. And I'll try to remind you of that as the date approaches. I'll keep um, keep this note handy. Uh, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's a story certainly worth retelling, even if it's in a 21st century adaptation. And one can only hope, and I, I can't say one way or the other because I haven't yet had the opportunity to see it, One would only hope it is faithful to the original story. That's not always the case, but there you have it. Again, that's uh, coming up. And on the 25th of October for 48 hours, you can actually stream it uh, online. But it will be out in theaters in 2020. And I'll try to uh, keep that date top of mind until it has come and gone so that you won't forget as I most likely would. Well, if you didn't have an opportunity to listen to our first hour, I had an opportunity to speak with a professor from Corbin University. Timothy Anderson is the author of a new book, Into His Presence, A Theology of Intimacy with God. If you miss that conversation, you can always go to our podcast, and there you'll find not only that uh, conversation, but all the conversations we have here on the program. Maybe you'd like to hear to an enti- hear an entire show, or you'd like to uh, single out a conversation. You can check that out there. Go to kpdq.com. I also had the opportunity, as uh, you know, to talk with Phil Vischer of uh, VeggieTales fame. He is back and collaborating on a new series of VeggieTales along with the uh, Children's Bible that we mentioned, the Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids. Great tools, perhaps, for your family's uh, devotional time. Uh, so Phil Vischer uh, is beginning uh, that new collaboration, and that's exciting as well. Well, today we learned a bit about what's going on in Washington with the uh, prospect of impeachment, which has essentially been a prospect for months now. 
uh, moving a bit closer to a possibility. Right now, Nancy Pelosi doesn't yet have the votes. The president has said he's going to release by way of transcript the conversation that has uh, sparked the controversy. Uh, what I do know, um, sorting through all of the details, trying to understand what's true and what's false, whether or not impeachment is merited in this case or not, I do know that we have an obligation and a privilege of praying for those in Washington. It is a mess there, and very little is being done because the focus is narrowed uh, to things that don't actually move things forward for the American people. So I hope we'll all take seriously the opportunity we have, whatever side we happen to be on or no side at all, to pray for those who are in authority, as we're told in Ephesians. I'm frustrated. I'm a bit uh, angry at what I see. I'm um, a lot of things. But one thing I am is that's a follower of Christ, an ambassador of Christ, and I have the opportunity to pray uh, that justice will be done, that truth will out, and that uh, ultimately those who are in positions of authority will do what's in the best interest of the American people. So I hope you will join me in that as we try to sort through uh, everything that's been said, accusations, denials, and so on. Today's program was produced by James Blend. Clark Hilton is today's engineer. And I'd like to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Once again, tomorrow I'll be off, but on Thursday we'll talk with John N. Pollard, author of Chester A. Arthur, The Accidental President. That's a Regnery history book, and we'll discuss it on Thursday. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.